nearly two score ago, my forefathers, well, at least my one father and my mother, brought me into this world and through experiences, study, and conversations, I now bring my thoughts surrounding government and history to my students. So join the class and remember, you can learn and laugh at the same time. Welcome folks, this is my first version of my new show called Mr. Schreiner Says Things. Love the title. Of course you might be wondering, where would you get such an amazing title like Mr. Schreiner Says Things? Well, it starts in my mind really, and in 8th grade. I remember at DeVoe Junior High reading a sign that the teacher had put up on the, on the wall, and I saw it every day, and it said, knowledge is the currency of democracy. And that was by Thomas Jefferson, and after that, I loved, love, love reading all kinds of things from Jefferson. And to be honest with you, I got this inspiration for my title from a little document that Jefferson penned, and let me just read you a little snippet. Okay, towards the end of the document, it says something like this. And the right ought to be free and independent states and that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. And that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may have right do. That's the Declaration of Independence. Um, I always laughed. So poetic, so meaningful, so carefully thought out. And towards the end of the document, it says we can do all other acts and things. And I just wonder, you know, Jefferson, were you tired there at the end? All other acts and things? So with that, we will pay homage to Thomas the Jefferson, our superstar, superhero, uh, and say, Mr. Schreiner says things. Today's little episode is going to be uh, something a little bit different. Uh, we're talking about amending the Constitution, and uh, for our government class, there's a couple ways to do that. Uh, we've already studied formal amendments to the Constitution, where it starts at the national level and you require two-thirds a national uh, legislator or the Congress, each house, the House and the Senate. There's also a convention in there that can be called, uh, which has never been done. That's just for proposing an amendment. Uh, two steps to that proposal. The second step, of course, is the ratification, requiring three-fourths of states. Not an easy thing to do. Um, getting two-thirds of Congress folk and senators to agree on anything beyond August should be National Peach Month is pretty difficult. Uh, passing a law, two-thirds of them, probably not. Um, tinkering with the Constitution, actually adding words to the document. There are some members of the Senate and the House that will look at that as being totally off limits and, you know, before we open that document up, should we be opening that document up? Um, is their thoughts. So that two-thirds number just to propose an idea is, is not the easiest thing to do. Um, and then, of course, like I said, ratification to the states. You know, 26 amendments have gone through state legislators, three-fourths of them. Uh, of course, that number changes. What, what really does three-fourths mean today? It means 38 states, but once we had 13, so that was a little bit different. Uh, and then one, just one, amendment 
the 21st Amendment went through a different route where it was uh, state conventions, three-fourths of state conventions, and that allowed Americans to start drinking again. But we're not talking about formal amendment changes. We're not talking about the wording changes, the additions to the document. What we're talking about today is informal changes. I like to tell my students, it's not so much you're changing the words of the Constitution, because in many cases you're not. You're changing uh, the meanings of the words, um, how they're interpreted, the clarifications, all right? And we'll start real simply with this. There are pretty much five ways to informally, informally change uh, the Constitution or make amendments, okay? And the first way is probably one of the most important ways, and it's through basic legislation. Our Constitution, in its genius uh, writers, decided to kind of leave some of the cabinets bare when it came to um, writing exactly what they meant. Uh, and they left it up to the Congress to decide uh, when there were different pieces that needed to be clarified. So, for instance, uh, we have the 18th Amendment, which banned alcohol in the United States. Uh, it really doesn't do a lot, a whole bunch, other than it says you can't drink, manufacture, sell, import, export. Really what it came down to was something that eventually would be called the Volstead Act and other pieces of legislation that, that put the meat to what they were trying to do. You know, what was there alcohol that was allowed? Well, obviously medical alcohol, surgeries and hospitals and different places would need that. Um, of course, there's a religious exe uh, exemption, and I would imagine that... Um, there were probably a few churches around the country that would order an extra barrel or two of wine and uh, probably had some inventory issues. You know, quite obviously, people didn't stop drinking. Uh, but you had to have the religious exemptions. And then, of course, punishment. All right, If I'm floating across Lake Erie with some of Canada, Canada's finest there and trying to import it in and you know, the guy down the street's got a bottle or two. You know, I got 14 barrels that I'm riding through the countryside trying to sell, and he's got a couple bottles. We definitely should not be treated equally, and you got to define what the crimes and the punishments would be uh, with things like that. So basic legislation spells out uh, what was the the idea that the framers were doing and, and how does it, you know, how does it really uh, fit for us. Um there are, there are quite a few other examples of exactly what that means. You also have executive action, okay? The President of the United States has used his powers from time to time um, to produce important uh, informal amendments. You know, for instance, uh, Congress has the power to declare war, but the President of the United States, we know, has uh, declared war unofficially, but sent troops into uh, war zones all over uh, the world. Uh, we probably in a couple situations still, even today, are pulling them out, I guess, um, out of the Syria region. Afghanistan and Iraq a couple times, and uh, Vietnam, obviously being one of the largest undeclared wars in history. Uh, and then the Korean War conflict, which wasn't even under the United States' umbrella. It was more under UN, United Nations, uh, work. But presidents of the United States have sent troops, the armed forces abroad, to uh, in combat situations, which if you ask any of the soldiers, they're fighting. It's war. Might not be declared. It might not have taken a act of Congress, which we did back in the 1940s with Japan, Germany. I suppose we had a state of war with the Italians. I'm not certain that was much of a war with them. <clears throat> but the Germany, Germans and the Japanese, obviously we did. All right. Uh, but executive action, we have situations where the president's 
of the United States through time have done certain things. We also, you know, we have something that um, kind of changes a little bit the the constitutional thought. We have something called treaties, which require the uh, state of negotiations between two countries, and, and it requires, ready for this, Senate approval. Oh, boy. All right. Uh, Treaty Versailles, of course, was the end of World War One. We wrote the thing and didn't even sign it. Uh, we wrote it and didn't join it, couldn't get it past the Senate. Uh, not a really uh, a great treaty if the one of the co-writers of it um, aren't even part of it. But we also have something called executive agreement, which isn't necessarily in the Constitution, but has taken a kind of an arrangement and taken the state of foreign affairs to the president and making a direct agreement or pact with the head of a foreign state. Okay, does not does not require Senate approval. All right, so we have basic legislation that defines laws, defines the Constitution, rather. Um, and then, of course, like I had mentioned, executive action. Also, court decisions. I mean, here's one of my favorite cases ever, the case of Marbury versus Madison. And you could go through and find out everything that it was about. But we need a Supreme Court to rule uh, what what was the intention. And, of course, you know, we can go into whole other episodes of, do you read it like they wrote it in the 18th century? Uh, or do you read it as a living document that changes to our, our terms today? And that's uh, strict constructionist or more liberal uh, interpretations of the Constitution. But that's not what we're talking about today. What we're talking about is just a system of interpreting the Constitution. And over time, this may make informal amendments to what the document or the way that the United States runs and, and our understanding of the document, I guess I should say. We've had situations in the 1890s where the Supreme Court has ruled that segregation uh, was legal, constitutional. It was backed by our founder's document. As long as people were separate but equal, it was fine. By the 1950s, we realized that it's impossible to separate and be equal. Nothing was ever equal. Um, and it, it came in this situation into schooling. Um, of course, people would say, well, you know, they have a school for the African-American children. Uh, well, yeah, but it's on the other side of the county. Well, they have transportation. Well, the white kids, if they live within a mile, get the bus. African-American kids, it's, it's a five-mile thing. Well, they both have roofs. on the Yeah, but there's leaks. Well, they have books. Both schools have books. Uh, well, these ones are kind of outdated, and we don't have enough. All right, so separate but equal definitely was not something uh, that worked. But going back to what I was originally talking about, the case of uh, Marbury versus Madison, a pretty landmark case in 1803. The country wasn't that old. But I, I teach this to my students like this. The discussion came up on whether the Constitution actually gave the Supreme Court the power of judicial review. Judicial review being the idea that the courts could judge the constitutionality and uh, of a government action, a law, an action of the president. And they needed the Supreme Court in this case to basically determine, okay, let me get this right and, and listen close. The Supreme Court had to hear a case to decide, which decided whether or not the Supreme Court had the power to decide whether or not it had the power to determine constitutionality. 
So the Supreme Court heard a case to determine if it had the power to determine if it had the power to determine constitutionality. I think that actually makes sense. Which, of course, when given the choice of whether I have the power or not, I'm going to pull the old He-Man there and say, I have the power. The Supreme Court, of course, ruled that they did. The judicial review was exactly what the Founding Fathers believed. Maybe they didn't spell it out exactly, but they definitely let the court, uh, let it get to the Supreme Court. I always tell the students, think of it like this. If you're asking me if I have the power to decide if I have the power, I must have the power or you wouldn't be asking me. Because if I didn't have the power, how could I decide that I didn't have it? And if I could decide that I didn't have it, doesn't that automatically assume that I did anyway because I'd have the ability to say yes or no? Again, I'd have to rewind this and read it back to myself in the transcript, but I think that really makes sense. So the the, the Supreme Court decision of uh, Marbury versus Madison, and let's, let's go into the future. Uh, 2014, which actually is in the past from where we are currently... Uh, in 2019, but in the future from the 1803 Marbury versus Madison case, and we'll look at same-sex marriage. Obviously, in the United States of America, when the Constitution was written, uh, the idea of same-sex marriage was probably not on their radar, especially because they didn't have radar. Um, but the Constitution was silent on one thing, and that was on marriage, and it left it up to the states. And it did say that every state had to basically accept the records, including marriage certificates, of other states. It just said records, but it was been understood. And, you know, you fast forward things to today and that includes driver's license. I'm married in all 50 states. I can drive in all 50 states. Um, I can only vote in this state. Uh, but driver's license and marriage licenses are all good. One time when I was in high school, I believe... I wanted to rent jet skis in Florida, and crazy enough, I actually had to take my Ohio, Ohio driver's license and use it as identity to take a test for a Florida small craft license or something like that, which of course, I'm like, that's great. I can now ride a boat or drive a boat in Florida. Thank God. Well, the guy said, he goes, that's actually good in all 50 states, and I thought, oh yeah, you're right. I can drive in all 50 states, and I can operate a small watercraft. I live in the Great Lakes, and I probably brought it back, and I'm sure it was good for a year, two years, three years, whatever it was, and I used it never, okay? Uh, but I had it. I had it. So the states had to, you know, obviously what we're going back to is the states had to honor the records of other states, and same-sex marriage caused a little strain on that because some states didn't allow it. Um, some states, you know, would say we're being forced to allow a system that we don't want. Uh, some states said we'll have a separate civil union system. So you know the whole story, it goes all the way through. And what came of it in 2014 was there was this idea that same-sex marriage was something that was supported by the Constitution, all right? So the Constitution, through a court decision, uh, has been informally changed, which includes a national, um, a national marriage definition. Uh, the United States government uh, back in the Clinton era signed the Defense of Marriage Act and that would deny um, Social Security benefits even in states where two same-sex people were legally married. Uh, it was a federal definition of same-sex marriage uh, or of marriage 
and you know that would obviously kind of come to an end end as well so we have looked at basic legislation we have looked at court decisions and executive actions all right when we're informally changing the constitution there is one thing that uh, we all um unfortunately know that was going to come up because it has to on a government topic are we ready Political parties. Political parties were not, were not, 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 not in the Constitution. Political parties have, <clears throat> in spite of warnings, including George Washington, uh, to warn us against the political parties forming, and they did. There were people that wanted the Constitution and people that didn't. Uh, Americans, and I'm sure most people, but Americans have always done a good job of uh forming groups of people amongst themselves, and it seems like two groups, the haves, the haves, nots, the Republicans, the Democrats, whatever it happens to be. And the political parties, you know, Washington could kind of keep people together, but as his time was winding down and he decided uh, to no longer be president, political parties, the, the spirit of them was in the air and not necessarily a good thing. And the nation developed into what we had a, a Federalist Party and then the Democratic Republican Party. Uh, there were others, and we're not going to get into all that in today's. But political parties have really defined um, how we run government. You could you know, almost make the argument that the United States in many ways is government through party. Um, elections, there's a line item, a line uh, uh, access for the Republican and Democratic uh, candidates. We have, and that's not necessarily the idea, um, the politicians through the parties have hijacked the Electoral College. Uh, the original idea was if you were an elector of your state, you got two choices. You know, there was the native son and then, you know, the kind of the national choice. And you would go through there and you'd kind of write down like, all right, I'll take this guy and this guy. And they'd add them all up, and whoever had a majority of the votes would become the president. The second place person would become the vice president. That was the original design. And that worked really, really well until we had political parties. And when we had political parties, we had a tie in the Electoral College because we had a team. We had a, 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 a main candidate and a running mate, basically. And they tied because it was the only thing that was allowed. And um, the Electoral College failed to work, and we had to, of course, the Constitution had uh, solutions for that. Picked Thomas Jefferson, and the 12th Amendment will, will change that electoral process. But even today, political parties, um, electors are chosen by which, basically, which state, um, state's candidate or which candidate wins, those electors are chosen. And they become the, the actual vote in the presidential election. Um, in the, my local Lucas County Board of Elections, if you have a question on your ballot, they have to send over a Republican and a Democrat just to answer the question because they don't want them to be changing or influencing. And it's like, oh my dear Lord. No, I get, I get it. And we should be having this systems. But again, it wasn't the original design. Congress, both the Senate and the House of Representatives conduct all their business based on parties. All right, and every once in a while, you might get a, a, a independent elected or or somebody that isn't necessarily a Republican or not necessarily a Democrat. Or heck, we've even had Republicans and Democrats switch parties 
when they could win a local election. Um, there's a couple cases, in, uh, there's one in Pennsylvania, there's one in uh, Connecticut years ago with a couple different senators. But political parties definitely have defined how we're going to do business, and it's unfortunate. Um, we are not like other countries in that we have, we don't have really have multiple parties. I mean, you can say, well, there's this party and there's the, um, uh, I don't know, the Communist Party and the Socialist Party and the Workers' Party and the uh, Tea Party and uh, my rent is too damn high party or whatever parties are around. Uh, yeah, they have them. Probably got the Marijuana Party. Um, I don't, I don't know. Whatever. You got different parties. Uh, but the Republicans and the Democrats pretty much have control of the operation. And to be honest with you, <clears throat> there is one thing that both Democrats and Republicans can always agree upon, and that's keeping minority parties out. So having said that, ballot access is not necessarily what the Founding Fathers thought, but the Republicans have one, the Democrats have it. And if your little party can meet the qualifications for whatever it happens to be, to get on the ballot, you could be on there also. All right. So political parties, but uh, executive action, court decisions, and basic legislation, which leaves us with one last thing I would like to talk about, and that is unwritten customs or traditions. All right. They sometimes become as strong as written law. Uh, this is how we've just done business. Um, <clears throat> I'll be honest with you. Uh, traditions in families or in schools or uh, workplace, well, we've just always done it this way. Uh, well, we can't change that. We've always done it this way. I don't know why it started necessarily, but that's just how we've always done it. For some reason, when I was a kid, we weren't allowed to touch walls. I don't know why. I don't know if it's because our grubby Cheeto hands would get on the paint. I have no idea. But to this day, I even look at my kids like, why are you touching the wall? You're not supposed to. And I think they asked me why, and I go, I don't know. Just don't. We had a rule growing up, you couldn't even have pop or soda uh, before noon. Don't know why. Maybe it was to cut down on the amount of soda. I don't know. But to this day, until noon, I'm like, uh, well, you know, probably can't have this yet. I don't know why. It's just a custom. Well, some of those customs are included in the way we've run business, okay? The Constitution does not necessarily set up heads of the 14 or 15 different departments um, of the executive branch, which make up the cabinet, okay? Um, it it kind of talks about it, but it really doesn't. And this advisory body that the president has um, just came because, well, he needed people to run the country, help him run. He can't do everything. And he had this cabinet, and by custom, it was kind of created, Require Senate approval and stuff like that for these people, but these folks, for not being necessarily constitutionally bound, and what I mean by that is created through the Constitution, they're in it now through uh, succession. If we would get down past the president and the, uh, past the vice president and a couple um, congressional spots that we have for um, for presidential succession, we literally could find ourselves with the. Secretary of Agriculture as the President of the United States. We don't want that. We don't want the Secretary of Education to all of a sudden say, hey, you're moving to the White House. We've gone down this far on the, the uh, uh, you know, succession list. This is definitely not something we want. 
I mean, to be honest, so let's just be honest. If we're down to the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development becoming the President of the United States, I don't think them being, I, I think we got other problems if we're down that far. Okay. But anyway, the cabinet is advisory uh, system is, is something that um, started with Washington and has moved on. Um, to be honest with you, even the president, uh, the vice president succeeding the president, it, 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 in the Constitution originally stated, it just says the vice president shall assume the powers um, of the president if, if there's a, a need. And every time that the president, the vice, yeah, the president died, the vice president just became president. Were they assuming the office or were they assuming just the powers of? And I guess the Constitution said just the powers. We clean that up with a formal amendment, uh, the 25th Amendment, that says, no, no, no. He not only takes the powers of the president, but the person will also take the, um, the, the office of such. All vice presidents have done that. We have a weird thing called senatorial courtesy. Uh, basically, the Senate will really only approve presidential appointees for... Uh, federal judges and marshals and things like that. Um, once there's been kind of an acceptable choice between a senator from that state where that judge is going to practice, that's really of the president's same party. And, and to be honest, with you, it's kind of cool because it gives the Senate uh, a little bit more say on who gets in uh, to some of these jobs. And, and for federal judges, they could be lifetime positions. But it also um, allows that federal judge or, or whoever it might be they they, they kind of have a, a senator guiding them through the process. You know, they need those those senators to vote for them. Uh, just because the pro president's nominated them doesn't necessarily mean they take the office. So we have this thing called senatorial courtesy. And like I said, president and, and president's party and the senators of that state of the same party kind of work together to come up with a list. Um, the, the Probably the biggest one, of course of a custom is when George Washington just said, I'm done being president. Listen, this guy had done a lifetime's achievement of work, a body of work, several times over. His business and land track uh, gains was a lifetime achievement of work. When he became the uh, general of the army and led us through the revolution, a body of work that is good for anybody. Now he's got two things. Um, work within the beginnings of the government and helping get through the writing the Constitution. Again, we'll remember you for that. And then, for all intents and purposes, was there anyone else that was going to lead this country as our first president? Probably not. Well, obviously not. I don't think he wanted the job. I think he was ready to retire. I think he was bound by service to this nation and he had done it throughout his entire life and washington took those orders uh winning the first electoral college he won a second time as the constitution states a president can be elected and then of course uh are eligible for re-election and he was done wrote his letter i'm retiring leave me alone we close the 1700s with uh, uh, 1796, roughly, with the President of the United States walking up to the podium with the President-elect, and some words are exchanged, and time passes, uh, goes from 1159 to noon, uh, the oath of office is exchanged, and power dissolves from the President Washington, and he becomes Citizen Washington, former President, but Citizen Washington, 
And John Adams takes that, that power. Probably really one of the first times in history where this just beautiful, uh, legal, peaceful transition of power. No violence, no revolution, no stabbing in the back, uh, et tu brute thing. It just, I was done leading. And there's an election. And here it goes. And now I'm going to retire. And Washington dies in the last week of 1799. Probably one of the greatest growth eras of the American experience takes place from 1800 to 1899. We're sea to shining sea, the railroads, the, the growth of the country through immigration. Uh, just an amazing dynamite period. And Washington leaves in 1799 at the end of December. So he's not part of it. It's like he left us. Here you go. Take 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 the reins on it. Well, the biggest thing is most presidents after that never even dreamed of running for a third term. It become, became a customer tradition for the president of the United States to be done after two terms. And that was great until uh, it's 1940. Europe is burning. Asia is burning with the Germans and the Japanese, respectively. Um, and we're in the middle of the Great Depression. And FDR said, you know, I'm running for a third term. And people are like, you can't do that. Why not? Well, Washington didn't. It's, not against, the, it's against the Constitution. Well, where does it say that? Well, it doesn't. But it, it's a tradition. Custom. Stop it. Stop it. Well, let's leave it up to the people, the electors. Well, they elected him. You know, I remember seeing a button. I, I wasn't there, by the way. But I remember seeing a button in my studies that said, better a third termer than a third raider. Um, that's, that, that's, that, that's kind of the, the whole idea there is, do, do, you, do you want just me to be done as FDR? Do you want me to be done just because I've served enough? Um, I'm trying to keep us out of this war and fix this economic condition in our country. Well, of course, uh, he's elected in 40 uh, after being elected in 32 and 36. And then why not? You don't change horses in midstream. I've never been a farmer, but I kind of just seems like a good idea. Um, in 1944, he's reelected, only serves a couple months into that fourth term. Uh, four elections. So after four elections, we, you know, the Republican Party. Um, was like, oh boy, we lost four in a row. They lose the 48 election. The Democrats win that. Harry S. Truman, whoop, my boy. And five in a row, they're like, that can't happen again. So the 22nd Amendment is added to the Constitution, uh, changing the broken custom to officially amending the Constitution or formally amending it and saying you can serve two terms. Then you're done. Or 10 years. Confusion, of course. Two terms are 10 years. How, is that, how does that work, Mr. Schreiner? Well, it's real simple. If you take over in the third or fourth year of the president's term and you're the vice president, you get to serve those two years or less. And then you got two terms of your own. If you take over in the first or second year of a, of a term, you only can do one because that's going to throw you over that 10-year mark. All right. We have just a handful of humans in this uh, this country that cannot be president due to the fact that they're term limited. Um, let's see. Well, we got uh, George W. Bush. We got Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. Okay. Uh, Jimmy Carter at 95 is still el eligible for one more term, but I don't think that's going to happen. But who knows? Maybe it will. 
The point is, uh, customs, political parties, executive actions, court decisions, and basic legislation uh, have all made the Constitution uh, a little different uh, in its interpretation, in its wording. Okay, I do appreciate you guys coming here. If you have any questions or comments, um, somehow send them to me. Um, this is, of course, Mr. Schreiner Says Things, and I will see you next time. Now, if you got ideas, please send them to me. Uh, I'm pretty much just going to go through our government book and write things up as, I, as we're kind of doing them in the class. But like my government class, we can always take a little time to talk about a current event or two. All right. I will see you back next time. I thank you.